It's good to be here with you all this morning. Very encouraged by these mornings, these Thursday mornings. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Todd Erickson, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I work with uh, young couples, guys, uh, men and women in their kind of mid to late 20s, early 30s. And I just wanted to thank all of you who've been a part of Amen for, for years and years now. Um, the leadership of Amen made a great uh, intentional effort this past summer to, uh, to work with myself and, and Mitchell and Barton and the groups that we work with to, to uh, increase the number of uh, younger guys who are here. And I want to pre- thank you all for welcoming the young guys that we brought here and, and just say that it's been an encouragement uh, for us to bring um, guys from our class into, into this setting uh, to learn with you and to be mentored by you. So thank you very much. Um, for doing that. Um, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I um, want to say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'm really disappointed that last week nobody asked Barton any questions about sex. I mean, you have the opportunity in the middle of the lesson to interrupt him and ask him questions, and, and I just, Barton, I think you got off easy. So, uh, um, but I want to encourage you, again, whether, whether it's today or uh, next week when Sandy's back, to use that, um, uh, that email site, I guess it is, uh, to go ahead and send in questions so that we can kind of create this, this dialogical moment that if there's something that's on your mind regarding the text, you can go ahead and uh, ask it. And what's great about that is probably, you know, 30, 30 others of us are thinking the same thing and wanting to know the, the same, uh, ask the same question. So if you send those in during this time here, Lon will get them, and then Lon will wave at me, and uh, we'll go ahead and stop and, and look at those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as you can see, we're going to be dealing with uh, what it says uh, in your Bibles, lawsuits against uh, believers. And uh, as I began to study this passage, the first thing I thought of right away is just how much I love winning an argument. Um, I just, in fact, I think... I don't think. There's, there's, there's actually something sinful about me. I love just dominating an argument. I like having the, you know, in this whole, whole government shutdown thing, which, by the way, if you don't know, while we were sleeping, that's been worked out uh, for now, till January. Yeah, until January. Um, the government should be back and moving. <laughs> if you work for the government, hey, you need to go to work today. Um, but, uh, you know, as you hear, whatever side of the argument you're on with, uh, with that, uh, with what happened the last 16 days, um, as you listen to the other side's argument, so whatever side you choose, as you th- listen to the other side, you just, don't you kind of just go, that's so dumb. That's just ridiculous. I, you, it's like, you don't even make sense. You know, and if you're on this side, you're looking back and you're like, that doesn't, that doesn't even make sense, um, what you're saying. And both sides, of course, are doing that and they just, and they, and they just couldn't get past. So you have the, the Democrats saying, hey, there's just, you know, to shut down the government and threaten the world economy just because you want to mess with Obamacare, that doesn't make sense, right? And the Republicans are saying, hey, listen, um, what you're about to do with Obamacare is going to do more damage than if we were to just wait and default on our debt. I mean, so you go back and forth, and, and as I'm listening to you know, talk radio, there's those moments when it's, when it's your side, when you hear just the, the zinger, and you're like, yeah. You almost, I almost wish I could have gotten up in front of Congress and, and just said, this is, you know, and here's it. Of course, everybody did that. It didn't work, you know. It wouldn't have done anything. But boy, I love those moments. Problem is, almost all of us love those moments, and that's why we get in unresolved conflict. 
We can only see our side. We can only see what, what, what matters to us. Um, it's very hard for us, especially when emotions get heated, to see the other person's side, to have empathy with the other person, to actually think that what they think makes sense. And so we can get in those places where what the other person thinks doesn't make any sense to us, and, and we just think what they need is they need, they need uh, to just believe what we believe. They need to think what we need to think. They need to decide what we need to decide. And that's what brings us down uh, to what's being said here by Paul to the Corinthian church. What was happening was that in the disputes that they were having, they were taking each other to court, to civil court. They were going to um, the, the local magistrates and having these, they, they were bringing lawsuits against each other. And as we read in here, even defrauding each other, using the courts to actually take advantage of each other within the context of the church. And this is a context in which Paul writes. He says this, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The big question for us, before us this morning is in, 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 pertains to the idea of the conflict that arises between us as Christian brothers and particularly the unresolved conflict that arises between us as brothers. And the big question then is why, why would we as Christians handle these things differently? Why would we be called as, as brothers in Christ, as followers of Christ, why would we be called to handle our unresolved conflict or to handle our conflict in a different way? And that's really where Paul's going here. Um, he's saying, listen, you ought to be different. And there's some reasons that you ought to do this in a different way. This, this should be a no-brainer to you. And Paul goes on to say, let me, let me show you why this should be a no-brainer to you. And the first thing that comes out in verses 1 through 6 is this, that we have a new position in relationship to the world, in relation to the world. We have a new position in relation to the world. First of all, Paul points out, listen, you have been, verse 1, he says, you've been set apart from the world. He calls them saints. Saints means set apart from the world. It's, the word, it's where we get the word holy from. So as, as followers of Christ, you and I have been set apart from the world. Being holy, being a saint, it doesn't, mean, doesn't necessarily just have to do with you having you know, better moral behavior than the next person. 
What it really means is that you, as a follower of Christ, we've been called out of the world by Christ. And not only that, but we've been called to be consecrated to Christ. So we've been called out from the common, and we have, and we have been given over to Christ. We have been united with Christ. And so there is a difference th- between you and the rest of the world. And again, it's not anything you've done. It, it's not because you and I are, are, are more holy, our moral character is better. That's not why. It's because, because God himself has called us out and has made us his own. Um, and so, you know, this comes out in so many different ways in our lives. I think um, baptisms that we've got coming up this, this weekend, infant baptisms that we've got coming up this weekend at our worship service. And whether you're in a church that baptizes infants or you dedicate infants, the whole point of what's happening there is that the parents are saying, listen, we are giving this child to the Lord. This child is going to be consecrated to the Lord. They are, we're, we're saying as parents, listen, we're going to work to call them out of the world and to give them to Christ. They belong to Christ. They no longer belong to us. I mean, they never did, but we're going to make the statement that they belong to Christ. So that's what we have to look at in our own lives. Um, our relation to the world is different because, number one, we have been set apart from the world. Uh, number two, letter B, you will be seated with Christ in the final judgment. You will be seated with Christ in the final judgment. We have these interesting verses where it says, where Paul says, hey, don't you know you're going to judge the world? I mean, if you're going to do that, do you think you could handle some trivial cases between some people in your church? And then he goes on, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Now, he says this real, like, we should all know what he's talking about. And apparently, in the early church, they did all know what he was talking about. But one way you can see this, maybe understand this, is to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking about what Christ has done for us in calling us out and consecrating us to himself. Uh, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there's the, the calling out and the consecrating to Verse 6, this is where it is. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So we have been raised up, we have been seated with him in the heavenly places. This doesn't mean that, um, that we are going to be, you know, in the, in the millennium, that we're going to be sitting as magistrates over unbelievers. That doesn't mean. What this means is, because you have to, to understand the context here, is that at the final judgment, when Christ is judging the unrighteous. The church will sit with Christ. We judge through Christ. We are united with Christ. And so, and, and the first place where you really get this is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, that the saints will sit with Christ in the judgment. That you will be in a place of judgment, not as the ones being accused, but as the ones who are making the decision, again, through Christ. This isn't you particularly doing this. Is, this is all of us uniting together and the church sitting with Christ. And so there is that final place for us. There is, a, there is, a, there is an eschatological uh, framework by which we think. We understand that we are not made just for this world, but that we're made for another world. And so our relation to this world is affected by the fact that we know that there's a final judgment. And we know what's going what's to happen there. 
And so that affects our relation with the world. It goes on to say that you're going to judge angels. And what this, again, is just saying is that your place, even though you were created, as it says in Hebrews, a little lower than the angels, that you actually, because of what Christ has done, have a rank that is going to be higher than the angels. You say, how does that happen? Because God just decided it. One of the most fascinating things that, 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 that angels find fascinating is our salvation. It says that angels long to look into these things, our salvation. They look down on earth and they, and they wonder why in the world God saved you. And the reason they wonder why in the world God saved you is this, because God didn't make provision for salvation for fallen angels, but for you. And so there is God placing his special mark upon you and you understand that, hey, my life isn't contained to this, to this world. Um, I, have a, I have a relationship with Christ that's gonna, that, that gives me a bigger picture of this whole thing. And I begin to understand it that way. That's why in Matthew chapter 18, when it talks about disputes between uh, Christians, it says, hey, you need to go first to that person by yourself. If they're unrepentant, then you take somebody along with you and you go and you talk to that person. Hey, and if they're still unrepentant, then you get the leaders of the church involved. That's what's supposed to happen. The church is supposed to be the one that settles these disputes. We're supposed to take care of those things. Why is that? Because we have a place that Christ has given us of decision-making, of judgment. And the church has been given that kind of authority. Well, the third reason, the third way we have a new position in relation to this world, uh, letter C in verses 4 through 6, we see that you are members of a new family. We've been seated with Christ in the final judgment We've been set apart from the world, and we are members of a new family. The words that are used there, church and brothers. And for us in our Western culture, sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp what's being said here, because in our Western culture, we think pretty much as individuals. That's one of our, that's one of our weaknesses when it comes to being a Christian uh, in the United States, is that we think as individuals. Um, for those that, that are believers in other parts of the world and other times in history, uh, over in the Middle East or China, places like that, the idea of us being responsible for each other, the idea for, of us being connected to each other, that, that completely makes sense to them. But when we study for ourselves God's word and when we talk about it in our churches and in Bible studies, we need to, we need to realize that we come with, an, as Westerners, we come with a hindrance to really understanding this concept of the Bible. And that is, it's not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus. There, there is a sense in which we are family, uh, and our family, this idea of being family is actually deeper than your own, than your own blood family. Um, my brother, uh, he's my best friend. Now, my brother happens to be a believer. But if my brother were not a believer, then I would be closer to you than I would be to my own brother, my own blood brother. Because instead of it just being the blood of the Erickson blood, see, I'm, I'm tied to you with the blood of Christ. So there is a deeper connection. There is a deeper responsibility. And that's hard for us uh, as Americans because we, um, you know, we think as individuals. It's also hard for us as Southerners because we really value family. 
And there can be places where we can kind of get ourselves in trouble when it comes to uh, following Christ because we'll put our own family above the family of God, the church. And what we need to understand is that there, there is a, we've been called to a new family and this family trumps our family. This doesn't mean, you know, this doesn't mean we, we sin against our own family. It just means that our commitment needs to be greater than our commitment even to our family. Not that we neglect our commitment to our family. Remember what Jesus said? He's, he was teaching and his, uh, his, his mom and his brothers were a little bit weirded out by the fact that he was just kind of out there. They thought, you know, people were saying Jesus was crazy. You know, so his mom and his brothers show up to take him home and say, hey, you know what, you're going a little nuts here. And somebody comes in and says, hey, um, your mother and your brothers are here and they want to talk to you. And Jesus in this room says, here are my mother and brothers. This is my family right here. We've been called to a new family. So our position in the world, in relation to the world, is affected because you all in here, if you have a relationship with Christ, you are called to be committed to each other at the deepest level. And there is something, and we're not exclusive. The church is not meant to be exclusive. It's meant to be inclusive. But you are first and foremost to care passionately about the people in your church. I would add to this that uh, that's why it's so important for each of us to get fully, completely involved in a local church. There's all these one another commands in Scripture and the epistles, tons of them. When we're called to live these out with each other, and it said, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, hey, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love the people in this room, Jesus said, the brothers. And that passage would say to us, all of us, hey, the world is going to know that we follow Jesus, not because we don't cuss or carry a Bible around, not because we go to a Bible study at 6.30 in the morning on Thursdays. The world, Memphis, is going to know that we are followers of Christ by the way that we love the men in this room. And that's why it's so important to be full in at your church. Um, and we have a tendency because we think of it as individuals, if our, you know, things kind of get a little sideways at our church, what do we do? We go find another church because there's so many awesome churches in Memphis. And I'm pleading with you, for the sake of the family, don't do that. Hang in there. Hang in there long enough to wrestle with a brother and to really live out these things, to really love deeply. So the first main reason that uh, we settle disputes differently is because we have a different relationship with the world. We have a new position with the world. Verses 7 and 8, the second reason we handle disputes differently is that we have a new attitude in relation to each other. We have a new attitude in relation to each other. In verses 6 and 7, he, he points out, uh, or verses, excuse me, not, is it 6 and 7? 7 and 8. There we go. Um, Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah we did. All right, cool. Um, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's saying the stuff that's going on between you, listen, why not go ahead and accept a little bit of cost on yourself and why don't you, instead, you're actually using this to get at people in the church. 
So the first thing he's saying there in verse 7 is this. We need to willingly pay the price for unity. Letter A, we need to willingly pay the price for unity. Basically, Paul's saying, why are you guys even in courts at all? Why is this happening? And he had said earlier, I say this to your shame. Is there not anybody smart enough among you? And the reason he said that is because in Corinth, they kind of prided themselves to be people of wisdom. That was kind of the deal. And he's like, hey, people of wisdom in Corinth, in this church, is there, can you not settle this stuff yourself? Why are you even going into the courts? You need to be willing to pay the price for unity. Unity needs to trump even your own, your own well-being. This is about us being a family. And this unity is probably going to be costly. This is where we get the idea that none of us as followers of Christ should ever and, and do whatever we can to, to, to never be in a lawsuit with another believer. I mean, there's one major practical takeaway from this morning. Do not get in a lawsuit with another believer. Let these things be handled by your church. That's what churches, what's one of the things churches are supposed to do. Handle disputes, let the leadership, go to the leadership and say, hey, that we have this unresolved conflict. We need your help. I have some friends in this room that have done this. They did the right thing. Instead of taking each other to court over something, to civil court, public court, instead, they went to the leaders of Second President. They said, listen, we cannot resolve this. I think I'm completely right. He thinks he's completely right. We can't figure a way around this. Please, we need your help to fix this. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what the leadership of the church is supposed to do. And when you do that, it might cost you. <laughs> you know, it, it, it might be that, that for the sake of, a, of the, the unity of the brothers, that you may have to lose some money for the sake of the unity of the brothers. That you may have to lose an advantage for the sake of the unity of the brothers. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to lay down our lives for each other. And sometimes the hardest part about laying down our lives for each other is when we have to <laughs> lay down some money for each other. Kind of, be, kind of accept that, hey, this guy is wrong and I kind of feel defrauded, but you know what? I'm going to, I've brought this to, I'm going to let a little, some little things go. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to make sure that the unity of brothers is maintained. This doesn't mean that you're not honest. It doesn't mean that you don't seek leadership of the church. It doesn't mean that you don't speak your mind uh, with all mercy and grace. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that your starting position is not to get yours. It means that your starting position is to seek the unity and peace of your church. Unity and peace of the brotherhood. Um, can you imagine the impact in Memphis alone if we were to treat each other like that? If they were to see disputes between us, understand the gravity of it, and watch us willingly lay down our lives for each other in those moments. Willing to be defrauded, willing to be wrong, willing to pay the cost for this. Not only that, in verse 8, letter B, 
We do not take advantage of others' vulnerability. We do not take advantage of others' vulnerability. Intrinsic to us being family is this sense of vulnerability. You know, you're just, you're just a little more exposed at home than you are out in the world, right? I mean, you just, yeah. The reality is um, that, though, that and if you're married, your wife um, knows you in such a way that she can encourage you probably like no other, no other person can. At the same time, <laughs> she, can, she can devastate you like no one else can. <laughs> and you can devastate her like no one else can. Because there is in family, intrinsically, there's a sense of vulnerability. As you and I live out in the context of our church families, this kind of deep unity and this deep commitment to each other as brothers, we make ourselves vulnerable. And what Paul, I believe, is making the point of saying there in uh, verse 8 is, listen, you're taking advantage of their vulnerability. You probably know some things about them that you wouldn't know except that you're in this context. And so be careful. Be careful with what, what you know. Be careful in the context of your family. And, and, you, and you know this. You live it out every day in your family. Because in that place, you're a little more exposed and, and, and people can get to you. Well, we need to be good caretakers of each other and make sure that... Uh, that we are not taking advantage of each other's vulnerability. So we have this new attitude towards each other. So when it comes to disputes, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to unresolved conflict, our starting point is the unity of with each other. That's our new attitude. That's our mindset. And out of that mindset, we're willing to be wronged and defrauded. We're willing to let that go. And not only that, we're going to be careful with the vulnerability that's been allowed us in the context of being family. We're going to be good stewards of that whole thing. Well, thirdly, we have a new lifestyle in relation to God's kingdom. We have a new lifestyle in relation to God's kingdom. So we've been given a new position in relation to the world. So we understand that, that, uh, that, that we have been called out from the world and consecrated to Christ, and so we would act differently. Now, and we have a new attitude towards each other. We're now concerned about the unity of the brotherhood. We care about the people in our church. We're willing to be wronged and defrauded. We will hang in there with the people in our church. We will hang in there. We will not go find another church because we just don't like that person or they're not being nice to us. No, no, no. We will hang in there. We will hang in there and be family. And we will work it out. And finally... We have a new lifestyle in relation to God's kingdom. And you see here a, a list of sins, and then um, you see something about, you said, and Paul says, hey, listen, you, a lot of you were like this, but now something new has happened. And so the way you handle yourselves out there in the world is just, it's just a little different. It's just a little different. And that list is interesting. The uh, first part of the list, um, well, let me just say letter A, verses 9 through 11, our old life is not compatible with the kingdom of God. Our old life is not compatible with the kingdom of God. There's a list there, first of sexual sins, and secondly of sins against others. 
These sexual sins, uh, of course, would have would coincided with a little bit with what Barton was talking about last week, that the Corinthian society was a uh, pretty over-sexualized society. Uh, and so, you know, Paul goes ahead and, and lists these things. Um, I just want to point out something for us, especially in our day and age, and all this, two things that come out of that list that I think are important for us to see. I think the first thing that's important for us to see is that sexual immorality and adulterers is in the same list with those that practice homosexuality. Um, I know it within the context of the evangelical and conservative church and the decisions the Supreme Court made earlier this summer that there's this big, and this big outcry and there's a lot of people taking uh, issue against the um, same-sex marriage and all that and the church is speaking out there. Um, and there's nothing wrong with us um, making sure that our lifestyle fits the kingdom of God and what he said. Um, as Sandy said, I think it was the Sunday after um, that Supreme Court ruling came out, uh, he said to our congregation, for those of you who remember this there, he said, hey, listen, um, we have enough problems with the heterosexuals in our church. So let's start there. Let's deal with that. And for all of us in here, uh, I, would, I would commend us in, in all our churches. When the, when the divorce rate church uh, is, is equal to or greater than the divorce rate in the world, um, our main problem is not the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Our main problem is, is the issue of our, of our own marriages in the context of the church. Um, and as, as Barton talked about last week, um, the rampant uh, use of pornography and pornography addiction. I heard something the other day, I think, or maybe this is what Barton brought up, that 21 million, uh, they estimate that 21 million people in the United States uh, have a pornography addiction. Um, so there, there, are, there are bigger issues in the church than same-sex marriage. I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm saying there's bigger ones. <laughs> And, uh, and as you see this list, we have to go, you know what? Adultery and, and sexual immorality, when you and I look at a, at a porno, uh, pornographic website, that's on the same list as practicing homosexuality. Um, so let's deal with this stuff in our own house, in our own lives. Um, this old life is not compatible with the kingdom of God. Um, We've got to put away these things. We've got to get rid of these things. The other thing I just want to point out before we move on, it says they're practicing uh, homosexuality. Um, I think that's important for us. Uh, I don't want to get into, uh, you know, a discussion necessarily about whether or not you can be uh, born uh, homosexual or it's something that is learned behavior. Um, uh, you know, we could, we could go around that all, all, all day. Um, I grew up with a propensity of lying. Um, I don't know if I learned it or I was born that way. Bible says, though, I was born fallen, so I'm feeling like maybe <laughs> I was born with that propensity. Um, that, doesn't necess that doesn't mean that um, I'm allowed to just do it. But here's what's important. I have a couple of friends who really struggle with homosexuality, um, and they're believers. And the issue the issue for them is really to just not practice it. 
They are not, they are not any more inherently sinful than I am because they have those temptations. Having those temptations, homosexual temptations, doesn't make you a sinner any more than having heterosexual temptations makes you a sinner. It's what you do with those temptations. And that's why I love what it says here, practicing homosexuality. The sin is practicing homosexuality. Um, those that struggle with homosexuality, I mean, I struggle with heterosexuality. I'm, I'm tempted to, to want to sleep with someone other than my wife. And I need to, I need to deal with that. That doesn't, that because I have that temptation, doesn't inherently make me a sinner other than I was born sinful, and that's why I struggle with that temptation. In the same way, my, my two friends who struggle with heter, I mean, homosexual uh, um, temptations, they are not inherently sinful any more than, than I am because we were both born sinful. It doesn't separate them out. And as we speak into this, this, as this becomes part of our culture and what's going on, we need to think clearly about that. Because praise the Lord, I, I am, as someone who struggles with heterosexual temptation, I am welcomed into my church. And in the context of my church, I can deal with my old life and I can put it away. And I want my two friends who struggle with homosexual temptations, I want them to be welcomed into the church. So that as they live out the following Christ and put away the old life and go towards the new, they can, they can deal with that. That's, that's, that's what we got to do as brothers. And that's how we have to, to live in the city. And that's how we have to enter into this, this uh, place we're going in the United States. Uh, to be holy men in an, in an unholy society. And to think rightly about that. Well, I also want to point out on that uh, other part of the list there. Um, he kind of gets on with the stuff, not just the sexual sins, but now he says, okay, now I'm going to deal with the stuff that's causing the disputes. Okay, you're, you're, you're thieving, you're greedy, um, you're revilers, you're swindlers. Um, you, are, you are people who, uh, uh, you know, you've you got to put that away. You're, you're not greedy anymore. You're not trying to swindle people. The way you conduct business is different now than it was in your old life. And your old ways are not compatible with the kingdom, and you got to put them off. And I'd say to all of us in here, they're different for each of us, but we know what they are. You and I know what are those things that were, that were part of our old life that are kind of, they're almost ingrained. There's, there's something that's, that, that's just a, in a rut in our life that, that, that's fixed. And maybe you, don't, maybe you don't struggle with this one thing, but you struggle with this thing over there because that was part of your old life. And you need to call those things out and you've got to name them. I love that Barton said that last week. I think it's so powerful. Make sure you have named your sin. Named it. Because when you name it, the power, starts, the power of temptation, the power that, that Satan has in your life starts to go out. Especially when you name it with another brother. I think that's why in James it says, confess your sins to one another. Because then it starts to take the shame away, Right? I confess to you, I name to you my sins. I say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this, and, uh, and, and, and these are the things I'm seeking God and forgiveness for. This is, this is who I am. You do that with another brother in Christ. And then the voice that Satan comes when he's tempting you and says, you know what, if people knew that about you, Todd, they would never love you. They would never hang out with you. And those kind of thoughts just drive you to more sin. 
But when you can answer and say, no, I, hey, Satan, I'll give you five people in my church that know my stuff. And I don't have shame in front of them. Because they have helped me understand the forgiveness of Christ. Um, so don't be people, we can't be people that hide, <laughs> like Adam and Eve, you know, sowing fig leaves to cover our, our stuff. No, we need, to be, we need to be people who come out in the light, covered by the blood of Christ, we're free. We don't have to live, we don't have to live in shame. Um, so name your sin. Your old life is not compatible, and then this is beautiful here at the end. But we are, in verse 11b, and this is letter B, we are new in Christ. Three powerful, powerful phrases for us to look at this morning as we wrap things up. It says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have, when it says you are washed, we have a new life. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you have a new life. It has been given to you. You are not making a new life. You have a new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You have been created new. You have been given this new life. What a, what a great blessing that is. For you to know that, that because of Christ's work, you have this in your possession. It's been given to you. And not only that, you were sanctified. You have a new behavior. Sanctification, again, fits with saints, fits with holy. Sanctified means to be set apart, not just from the world, but to Christ. So be, and you are in the process of being sanctified. Your behavior now, you want it to reflect your new life. And Christ has given you the power to, to choose differently. So when you walk out of here and you go to your businesses, you can do business differently because you've been, you've been given the ability to not be greedy, to not be a thief, to not be a swindler. You've been given the ability to be willing to be defrauded, to be willing to be wronged for the sake of unity. You have that power in you to live a new life. And we can walk in that new life. Being set apart, we're, we're moving closer and closer to Christ. You got a question? I think this is on topic, Todd, but we had a great question here. That's good. Let's do it. Um, this is about disputes with non-Christians. Yeah. And how sh should, should this teaching be carried over to those outside the church? Do we always want to die to self, or do mm. we want to carry out our disputes with non-Christians in the same way? Great question. You know, we, does this, do we take this and we apply it to unbelievers um, and do it in the same way, or, uh, you know, do we... Um, is there something different? Um, yeah, just, just take them to court and swindle them for everything. No, I said. <laughs> no, that is a great question. Um, no, I think that, uh, that this passage, just, just make this clear, this passage, this particular passage is dealing specifically with believers. So uh, whatever we need to do do in our handling and dealings with unbelievers, um, this passage is, is meant specifically in this context for believers. So the, what we might learn for how we handle disputes with unbelievers is going to have to come from other passages of Scripture, uh, not this particular passage of Scripture. Um, and, uh, 
And, and how those things are handled probably are these lifestyle things, okay? Don't be a thief. Don't be a swindler. Uh, don't be someone um, who is greedy. Uh, and then when you, have, uh, when you have disputes with someone, um, there is a level of willing to be wronged, you know, turning the other cheek. But there's also a responsibility for justice. We're called to reflect the justice of Christ. So as we move into those situations, we want to be merciful. Mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. We want to be gracious. Gracious means giving something what they, somebody something that they don't deserve. So we want, to be, we want to move into those things with mercy and grace. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, your church court, your church leadership really has no jurisdiction in, a, in an unbeliever's life. So probably you're going you're gonna to end up in a context of, of you know, working with lawyers or a court. And again, I don't see any place in Scripture where that's wrong to do that. Um, what would be wrong in your dealings with unbelievers is what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to accomplish justice? And are you doing it with mercy and grace? Now, if you're just trying to be greedy, if you're just trying to get yours, if your starting point is just to make yourself right, then, then there's other passages of Scripture that would, that would conflict with that. Um, I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Lon. I appreciate that. So new, new behavior. And then lastly, we have a new standing. We have a new standing. This probably is my favorite part of the whole thing. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Listen, brothers, I hope you hear this every day. I hope you're speaking it to yourself or, you're, or somebody's speaking it to you. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand right now righteous before him. You say, Todd, you don't know what I did yesterday. You don't know what I, uh-uh. You're justified. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified before him. The blood of Christ has completely covered you and you stand righteous right now. Not because of anything you've done or not done. And so as you go out and live, you want to go out and live in the reality of that righteousness. To know that, before, that God has nothing against you today. Because it was all taken care of at the cross. Completely covered at the cross. And see, that's that's why from this position, the position of, you know what? God has every reason, every reason to destroy me instantly because of the way I've wronged him. But he has, by his grace, justified me by paying the price. It was costly. He gave his own son to pay for my sin in order that we might be unified with him. From that position why, why would I fight with you? I don't need to fight with you. Because really, I don't have anything to lose. You can't take anything from me. You can't take away my new life. You can't take away my sanctification. You can't take away my justification, my standing with God. There is nothing you could, there's nothing I could lose to you as a brother. So why would I fight with you? But if we do get in a fight, we're going to our other brothers and we're saying, hey, help us. Help us settle this. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for the beauty and the power of your word. Thank you, Father, for the practicality of the things that we've heard today. Help us, Lord, in our dealing with unbelievers to deal in mercy and grace, to seek justice, but to seek it the humble heart. Lord, help us not to be greedy, thieves, swindlers. Help us to be instead people who are uh, seeking to live out this new life that you've given us. And Father, within the context of our churches, our families, may we live as brothers and sisters. May we, may we pay the price for our unity. Father, may we hang in there when we're hurt and we're frustrated and people aren't treating us right. Lord, may we love, may we change our own churches by staying in the fight. And Father, may the world see us being willing to be wronged and defrauded by each other in order to protect the unity of the body of Christ. May they see that and wonder in amazement. And may that amazement lead for your glory to their salvation. Father, we want Memphis to know that we are disciples of Christ by the way that we love each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.